Flair and this is Founder Coffee. Every two weeks I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings in an intimate talk getting to know the person behind the company. For this 21st episode I talked to Rob Walling of Drip, one of the leading marketing automation platforms out there. Drip started as a simple opt-in pop-up with an autoresponder. It then evolved into an email service provider to finally become a marketing automation platform. That's when it hit real product market fit and churn immediately started plummeting. Rob sold Drip to lead pages almost three years ago. Recently he started TinySeed, an early, early stage VC fund and remote accelerator that aims to fill a gap in the market by providing funding to SaaS companies who don't aim for the $100 million goal. We talk about Rob's passion for building, how he invested in WP Engine early on, the lack of marketing focus in SaaS companies, and why he works 35-hour weeks. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi Rob, it's great to have you on Founder Coffee. It's my pleasure, thanks for having me on. Uh, you're the uh, former founder of Drip, uh, now working on, on, on Tiny Seed, right? That's correct. And I, I think former founder sounds funny. I'm, I will always be the founder. <laughs> I just don't work there anymore. You know, I'm the former CEO, you might say. Former CEO, yeah. yeah. You, you, how long did you work there actually after the, the acquisition? Yeah, so I sold Drip to, uh, me and my co-founder sold Drip to Lead Pages in uh, July of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I worked for about 20 months Mm-hmm. Uh, for lead pages, and then I left just about seven months ago. Cool. So on to on to new challenges. Uh. Indeed, I thought I was going to be on to early retirement, <laughs> but of course, that's never how it works out when you're a serial entrepreneur. So I yeah. really just had to. I knew I would do something next. I just didn't know what it was. But I've since landed on Adam. Sure, we'll talk about that today. Yeah, let's let's first zoom into Drip. Perhaps what 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 is Drip doing? Yeah, so Drip started as just a little. Uh, it, it became an ESP, an email service provider like Mailchimp, mm-hmm. but it started as just a little add-on widget that almost added on to Mailchimp or Aweber, and then it became a full-fledged ESP that where you could send broadcast emails, manage your list. Then we added automation to it, and so it became like a next level, like a Mailchimp plus plus. You know, so people would upgrade to Drip from Mailchimp or Aweber, uh, and we were more in the area of uh, Infusionsoft or Active Campaign, like a true automation platform. And you know, as I said, Leadpages uh, acquired us in 2016, and since then, there's just been more. You know, doubling down. There's a whole visual workflow builder and all types of crazy stuff you can do with it in there. Um, catering a little more towards e-commerce these days, but um, it's still I still use it for all of my all of my businesses. You know, I run MicroConf and I have my personal robwalling.com list, and I have you know the new effort Tiny Scene. All that's in in Drip, and it works really well for that. So it's not it's not like it doesn't work for non-e-commerce, but I do think that's more of a, a focus of kind of their marketing these days. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting that it that it grew from like a very small plugin to then an email service provider to then an sort of automation platform. Can yeah. you maybe go into the very early stages? Like, why did you get started with this plugin? Yeah, what problem was it trying to solve? And, and yep. when did you guys get started? How did you get this? Like, 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 when was it that you said like, oh, we have this issue here. We should really make something for that. Yeah, totally. So we, um, <clears throat> it was in late 2012 
and I was running, I had, uh, I owned a SaaS app called Hittail. It's an SEO, long tail SEO keyword tool. And I was growing that pretty well. It was kind of a, you know, just a one person SaaS app. And I had a couple contractors and it was, it was very profitable and I was enjoying it. But I noticed that it was really hard. I got a lot of traffic to that site and I noticed it was hard to just do email capture. Like I just wanted to build the list faster. And I noticed that when I build the, built the email list, it converted more trials. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and I said, look, I just want like a little JavaScript pop-up that can pop up, you know, either as a little toaster widget in the bottom right hand or just pop up. There, this is before SumoMe. It's before Optin Monster. It's before uh, all the, you know, everything that we have today, that whole ecosystem didn't exist. So... I had a contractor named Derek who worked for me. He was a developer. And I said, hey, can you grab an open source something or other library? And I think he grabbed jQuery and, you know, built this little pop-up widget. And then we pumped it into MailChimp and did an autoresponder sequence. that was really just an email mini course, Mm -hmm. educating people on long tail SEO. And it took him almost a week to do this because he had to hack a bunch of code and he had to design and do all this stuff. And I was thinking like, this is nuts. This is stupid that this isn't simpler to do. And it, ju- it bumped our conversion rate way up. Like we, we started converting uh, 30% more of our unique visitors to trial. It took a little longer because they would go through the course and about three or four emails in, they would then sign up. So I was like, this, you know, this has to be, this should be a SaaS app basically. So that's when we said, all right, let's build. I, I you know, grabbed Derek and said, you know, Ruby on Rails, go build what you just built, but build it as a standalone SaaS app in Rails. And what we'll do is we'll just have the front end, you know, email capture and we'll pump into, um, we'll pump into MailChimp or AWeber. We also built our own little autoresponder engine that was pretty rudimentary at the time. And that was, I started building a list, you know, once we had, um, once we kind of had that idea and, and I knew, you know, where, where we were headed. And so we, you know, I built an email launch list of about 3,500 people over the course of 2013. And we kind of started launching in mid 2013, really slowly just to get people in. And uh, by November, 2013, that was when I did the big, kind of the big push to the, the rest of the list. Yeah. So if, 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 if I heard it well, you, you started with like, uh, it was very difficult to make a sort of uh, opt-in pop-up for your That's site. Right. Right. Yep. And you made something that pushed that to something like Mailchimp. Yep. Uh, but then very quickly you also figured that you could make your your own autoresponder. What was it that drove you to do, to do that? Well, to be honest, uh, I'll say we actually launched with our own autoresponder. That was the initial goal. But what we realized was, because we wanted to be kind of self-contained from the start, but what mm-hmm. we realized is so many people were using MailChimp and AWeber that, and they didn't want another thing sending email for them, that that request came through very early. I mean, w- within our first 10, you know, I did a lot of customer development, a lot of emails and phone calls and demos and stuff. And within the first 10 or 15 people who were kind of willing to pay us, they said, you know, I really just want to keep everything in one place. Could you you know, when, the, when you capture the email, could you just pump the person into MailChimp mm-hmm. and then, you know, do it that way? And we said, sure, why not? You know, so we built, we built that integration and then, then we built AWeber. Now, later on, when we became an ESP in 
20, it was really, it was late 2013, early 2014, right? So it's about a year after we Ooh. broke on our code. That Then we undid those integrations because now we were basically competing with them and it didn't make sense for us to continue kind of offloading, you know, offloading yeah. our subscribers to a, to a competitor. Yeah. So it was a big, it was a quick... I, I don't know if you'd call it a full pivot or just a development of the product, right? The early days. I mean, when we launched in November of 2013, I emailed the list and we got up to about $8,000 in MRR in our basically our first month live. And I was really happy with that. You know, I viewed mm-hmm. it as kind of a lifestyle business. And the problem was though, is as we as I was pumping top of funnel traffic and, and prospects into the app it really wasn't growing. There was just way too much churn. And so over the course of about four or five months, so into early, you know, early 2014, I got it up to about 10,000 or 11,000 MRR, but I was really spending a lot of time marketing it and a lot of effort. And it should have been growing way faster than that. Churn was 15% or something a month. Wow. And I knew that we did not have product market fit. And then I was basically making up for making up for the lack of building something people want with just having a lot, you know, a lot of top of funnel, uh, a lot of top of funnel traffic. Yeah. So you, you actually, you, you, you could have built this into like a full pop-up solution or something like could have at one point we have, yep. So we evaluated doing that, like completely going away from email altogether and Mm -hmm. just being the front end pop-up and doing all the, you know, you, there's all kinds of stuff you can build with that, right? Split testing and timing and scrolling and this and that and exit intent and all that. And in fact, Often Monster, I believe, came around, you know, during that time, late 2013, early 2014. They were first a WordPress plugin and then um, became a SaaS app. Mm-hmm. Sumo I believe, launched in 2014, 2015. And you can hear... So what's interesting is we recorded an audio documentary that's about 90 minutes, um, 90 minutes long. And it's basically every week, Derek and I, who was the, he was the contractor who built it and later came on as retroactively as like a co-founder of Drip because he was mm-hmm. such a pivotal, pivotal person. But he and I would have about a 15-minute chat every week and we would record it, a voice chat. And we had about nine hours of audio of just over the course of a year of the agony <laughs> and, the, and the confusion of launching this. And I edited that down to about 90 minutes. And you can hear there's a whole segment in the middle where I'm saying, what are we building? Like, who are we building this for? I don't even know what we're building anymore. You know, it's just kind of chaos and confusion. And so that's at startupstoriespodcast.com. It's just one 90-minute audio file. Um, but it's pretty interesting and really goes in depth around that, you know, this kind of, that, that for that 2013, early 2014 timeframe. Yeah. But then you made made the decision to to, to build an ESP. That's uh, right. And then you 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 saw that automation was something interesting, or how did yeah, that? Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly what happened. So when we built, we started building the ESP features and some very light automation. And this is before that Infusionsoft was around. And there really wasn't a good alternative to them that wasn't either a lot more expensive or a lot harder to use. And so we, we had a few customers who said, you know what, if you could just make it so that when someone clicks a link in an email that I send, that I can add a tag to that subscriber, or I can move them from one campaign to another, just very basic automation stuff that, is, that was very hard to do in MailChimp or AWeber. Mm-hmm. Or, or impossible, to be honest, unless you use code and APIs and stuff. 
we're getting customers saying, if you could literally do like two or three of these automation things, I would switch from, from MailChimp or whoever. And that was a big flag for me of like, whoa, I think this is where the puck is going. Because at the time, I heard marketing automation, that phrase for the first time in 2013. I didn't even know what it was. And it, it became, I mean, it really grew during that time. So we kind of caught that wave. It was a hard decision to decide to go into automation because it made the product no longer a lifestyle business. It, was, it made it very competitive. We were basically diving into red water where you had all these big companies with all this funding. And we were going to, you know, we, had, we were bootstrapped. It was two guys working out of my, you know, my home office. And it was like, are we really going to do this? We're going to complicate the product. Uh, not from even the front end. The back end is going to become very complex. It's going to become a real SaaS app and we're going to be you know, going all in with two fists. And so I struggled with that decision for a while and eventually said, I think this is, I think this is the way to go. Yeah. And so as, as we started rolling out automation, um, churn just plummeted, right? So it went from 15 to 12 to 10 to seven to five, you know, it just kept going down and down and down. And our trial count, um, it was funny, our trial count was going down during this time and our MRR was going up. Yeah. Because churn was dropping so fast because it was obvious. Like we hit, you know, in my vision, product market fit, I don't believe is a binary thing, right? It's, it's a continuum. And I, we were just crawling up that ladder, you know, over the course of about three, four months we, as we released new automations. And so yeah. that was by the time we were in mid, early to mid 2014, we had essentially become what I would call email marketing with automations, you know, we weren't a full blown like visual, you know, builder and everything, but we were, we were definitely a step above, you know, that basic ESP and people noticed and it was, we were an easier to use version of, of the other more expensive automation providers. And it was, it was crazy. Growth just kicked in like yeah. crazy all of a sudden, you know? So, so it's, it sounds like you got into the startups from, um, a lifestyle business perspective and then you, you start growing into having a, let's say a quote unquote, very serious business. Yeah. Um, can you, can you tell us some more about like what motivated you to, to get into these kind of things and what was it that you initially saw as your, your goal when, when starting companies? Yeah, no, that's a good question because you know, I've, I've run into a lot of people who they want to start startups uh, to get rich or they want to start startups to, for the power and the fame and to make an impact. And there, there's all these different reasons. And I don't believe that everyone has the same motivation. So I've always been a maker. You know, I, I love building things. And so from the time I was, I was young, whether I was making stuff with Legos or when I was eight, I learned how to program. And so I started writing code then, and I loved building games. Um, and I wrote, I wrote uh, uh, booklets and books and would sell them through classified ads in the newspaper because making the books was interesting to me, writing books about collecting comics and such. And so as I got older, I got out of college and I started working for other people, I realized I don't like doing things that I don't enjoy. And I started saying, you know, so I'd go into a job and I'd, I worked construction for a couple years and then I switched to programming and it was fine. I enjoyed it. But I don't like building things for other people. And I thought to myself, how can I, how can I control my own time 24 hours a day where I can do and build and make whatever I want? And that was truly the switch that flipped 
for me of like, the only, I think the only way to do that is to run my own business or to start a business and sell it for enough money that I don't need to work anymore. And I can then just go make whatever I want. And for me, making things is... Making companies is actually fun and making software is fun. So it's... I'm lucky in that respect, right? That, that some stuff I do enjoy doing is profitable and, and creates value in the world. And so it's, it's come back to me there. But um, that's really always been my motivation. I've never had the desire to run. Like if you ask me, you know, would you have enjoyed starting Facebook or running Uber or anything? Like I have no desire to do that. It's like at, some, at a certain point, you have enough money that you can do whatever you want. Why would you keep running this big company? You know, it did all the headaches and all the stuff that goes along with it. And that's just my perspective, right? I know that someone like Zuckerberg enjoys, you know, why he does it. But my motivations are very, very different. Yeah. You, you think he's not a, someone who enjoys this building process? Or? I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, he certainly was building and launching a lot of things when he was at Harvard. So there was something in him that wanted to create. What I've heard, um, oh, where was this? I think it was on This Week in Startups, but they were saying that basically Zuckerberg has almost no interest in kind of the operations of the company. And that's what Sheryl uh, Sandberg does mm -hmm. right? As, as his COO and that he really focuses on the things he enjoys. So there's something still there that he enjoys and he's probably able to make stuff. You think about Larry and Sergey too with Google, they're not sitting there working on the search algorithm anymore. They moved on to new interesting problems, right? They're makers. And I think they've, they've kind of balanced that, that thing of, hey, we got, we got really rich and we built a really amazing billion, you know, a hundred billion, whatever dollar company, several hundred billion. Um, but they have used that to then allow themselves to make, make other things, you know, at a totally different scale than, than I'll ever have the opportunity to do. Yeah. You, you moved on uh, pretty recently to the, the world of VC in, uh, funding, uh, being an investor, right? In essence, I mean, you know, it, there's there's a path in tw in 2011 when I barely had any money. Um, I got an email from a colleague named Jason Cohen, who was a fellow blogger. We were kind of in the startup blogosphere, and he said, "Hey, I'm starting a, a WordPress hosting company. It's called WP Engine, and we've been growing it for about a year. And I'm taking a round of investment. It's a closed round. It's oversubscribed, but if you wanted to put some money in." That would be that would be cool. So that was my first angel investment, and I considered it quite a gift, to be honest. To be part of the the first two rounds of WP Engine, which, as you know, you probably know, your listeners probably know, is now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Literally, not my share, but the whole company. Yeah. And so I I have always I've never raised funding, but I've never been anti funding. I'm only I'm anti. Raising funding if it's going to, if, if you don't know what you're getting into, you know, raising funding if you're, you don't understand that you might be giving up control or you don't understand the motivations or you don't want a board, but you're going to raise funding and then be pissed off about it later. Like I see people do that and I'm like, don't, don't do that. You know, just don't raise the funding if, if it's going to be a problem. I'm also anti everyone thinking that the only way to start a SaaS, you know, SaaS or software company is to raise funding because I don't think that's true either. But at the same time, I know I have plenty of friends who have either raised funding and it's been a great experience for them. And I've done myself about a dozen angel investments over the course of the last seven years. And it's about half of them are in companies that are on the, you know, on the more Silicon Valley trajectory. And about half of them are with colleagues who 
are going to grow really solid, probably seven-figure SaaS businesses. And those, you know, the profit margins on SaaS is, are, is very nice. And um, I think it's, I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea to take a, uh, you know, like several of these folks did, take a single round of maybe 200 grand just to get you started faster. And then once you get to profitability, you can cut, cut dividends or you can buy the investors out or you can sell the company and everybody, everybody makes out. I mean, those are the three options. So I, I would say I'm less of a venture capitalist because that sounds, that has a certain connotation. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's especially in my circles, right? My bootstrap circles. I'm much more about building companies rather than building slide decks. But I still believe that you can build a company and raise kind of a small round and help you move faster in the early days. And then maybe, you know, you don't lose, for sure, you don't lose control of your company. You don't have a board. You're not taking institutional money. And you don't have to, um, you don't have to raise another round if you don't want to. I think that's yeah. the big, that's the big turning point, right? Is once you raise from a venture capitalist, it's implied that you're going to raise again every 18 months until you either explode or you're worth, you know, a hundred million or a billion dollars. And that's mm-hmm. not the type of game I'm in at all. Um, the checks I write are for people to be like, Hey, let's, let's build this up into a nice seven figure SaaS app and we'll all win. No matter what you do, you can cut dividends. Like I said, you can cut dividends, you can buy us out or you can sell the company and any of those three are cool with me because we'll all be, we'll all do well with it. And so that's, that's the model I moved in. And that's, the, I gotta be honest, you know, what I, I've been writing checks, but I don't have an infinite amount of money. You know, I had a, I had a modest exit with, uh, with, with drip in the sense that I don't have to work again, but I don't have, you know, infinite pockets to be able to fund as many companies as, as I think are worth funding, you know, mm-hmm. that want to do this path. And so that, you know, about four or five months ago, I started talking to a, a friend of mine, co-founder who's in the more of the finance space. And um, we decided to raise, raise a fund. It's a small fund, but we're calling it tiny seed, tiny seed.com. And that's, that's to allow me to put even more money where my mouth has been <laughs> for several years, you know, just, just to, to be able to fund more of these types of companies. Yeah. How, how do you kind of find, because just before we talked about your, your motivation, which is mostly, um, uh, based on the enjoying to, to make things. How do you find this back in, in what you currently do? Ooh, that's a good question. So there's something about creating something novel and unique that really excites me mm-hmm. as a maker. And if you look at, um, you know, drip it was orig- first. The first iteration was not that. It was kind of novel and unique. But as we got into it, we were really pushing the boundaries of what people were doing with automation, and that was super fun. Tiny Seed is a similar thing. It is building a fund or building an accelerator. It's actually gonna, you know, it's a remote accelerator that is is frankly completely new because there are no year-long remote accelerators that are going to focus on, you know, mostly SaaS companies that will be in the seven or low eight figures, right? One to, let's just say one to 20, one to $30 million um, ARR is kind of our goal. And that is cool to me because it, it it's a gap in the market and it's a problem that no one else has, has tried to address to date. And so it's, it's, there's creativity in it. Because when we look at like, okay, so how do we structure these terms? 
well, we can't just look to venture capital because they structure things a certain way and that's not going to work in, the, in this model because the returns are, are, are totally different because we don't have, we're never going to have a Dropbox or an Airbnb or an Uber, you know, much like uh, uh, Y Combinator, 500 startups, tech stars, right? They, they're going to have these outliers that go to a billion dollars, multi-billion, and those are going to return the fund. Well, we're not going to have those based on our thesis. And so then the question becomes, how do we creatively address that? And so that's the part that excites me, right? Is thinking through hard problems and coming up with like cool solutions where there's no roadmap. You know, there's no, I can't just go read a blog, blog post about how to do this. We just have to think about it, model it out, and then talk to founders and be like, does this sound reasonable? You know, does this sound fair to you? And does this work for the model? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what is like your, your end goal now? Like, it sounds like you... How long are you working on this now? Uh, I'd say f- like four or five months. And four we announced, months. Oh, so yeah, it's we very announced stages. two months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've raised, I mean, we've raised enough. We raised, the money we raised was, came faster than I thought it would, to be honest. So we've raised enough to run a cohort, like a batch of 10 um, startups in 2019. Yeah. Do I know some of the startups that are part of it? Are there any? We haven't selected yet. Yeah, we're we're opening applications in early in Q1 2019. So the next month or two, we'll, I am, I'm doing some early conversations with folks that I know personally and and sussing things out. So I think we'll be picking, you know, at least a couple pretty soon, but yeah, then the application process will start. Yeah. Do you have any idea already of where you see this going or you're taking it very much step by step and you just want to get this off the ground first? No, I think, I mean, I think the natural progression of it will be run this first batch with probably 10 companies, maybe 15. And, and as I said, it's a, it's a year long. Um, and as we even get a couple months into that, I think we're already start, I'm starting to think about, okay, do we want to run multiple batches in parallel, right? So do we start another batch six months in or do we just run them back to back? I would also love to increase the batch size. I would also love to change geography. Like right now, we're probably going to focus on you know, Western Hemisphere because of time zone issues because we're going to have calls, every, you know, every week. But I'd love to think about, you know, can we do one in Europe? Can we do one in Asia? Can we, you know, can we, I mean, that's, that's the expansion idea, right? And so I don't, I try not to get ahead of myself. In general, I'm pretty pragmatic. So I'm not saying, oh, we're going to next year have 20 different batches of 100 companies because that's just nuts. But I do think ultimately that this expands both in, in kind of all directions, right? It expands geographically and it expands in terms of the number of companies we can pull through because by making it remote, here's the difference, right? Most, most accelerators are three months long and you move to a specific location for them. And, and you need to have a company that can have basically be a unicorn, right? Have a billion dollar valuation. Typically that's what you need to get in. So once we've undone all of those assumptions, you don't need to be a unicorn. You don't need to move somewhere. Um, and it's going to be a year long, right? So it's, it allows you to spend a lot more time growing a SaaS app because SaaS apps take so long to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the, the number of companies that fit that description are, is actually quite large, you know, because as soon as we remove the geographic limitations, it, it gives us a lot more of a pool to go through. So I believe that, that there's going to be no lack of companies that are going to be, you know, qualified and, and worthwhile helping through this tiny seed model. Yeah. 
it's mostly software as a service businesses you're um, focusing on. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, frankly, my expertise is in B two B, you know, B to small B or B to uh, you know medium sized business uh, mm -hmm. SaaS. Uh, but I'm not ruling it out. But I would, I'm guessing it'll probably be eighty or ninety percent. Yeah. That you know, it's just such a predictable model, and there's it's repeatable, it's subscription, you know, there's all these pluses about it. And yeah, I th that's where, I think that's where our sweet spot's going to be. Yeah. Sounds cool. Hey, in, in this whole um, journey um, you had with Drip and now Tiny Seed, um, is there anyone who particularly inspired you or that you've always followed or hey, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of folks who I look up to, right. Yeah. Who I, yeah. Kind of model myself after. Sure. I've always had a, t I've had a ton of respect for Jason Cohen, the founder of WP engine and he mm -hmm. logs at asmartbear.com. He's spoken at my conference. So I run microconf and he's spoken there several times and he just always delivers amazing, amazing talks. So I respect his thinking a lot. He's a very pragmatic thinker and also someone he's that interesting mix of a theoretical thinker but also an operator, right? He's also mm -hmm. built these amazing companies. There are very few people that do both. You know, we can think of folks who write books about startups that never actually start one, yeah. right? And they're the theoretical ones. And you can like some of them and not, you know, other times it's like, well, you don't have any credibility with me because you haven't, haven't launched one. And then you have folks who are, who are operators and founders and they can launch stuff, but they can't get up on stage and tell you why it worked. They just do it, you know what I mean? Whereas he's that mix of both sides of that, which is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, I also respect Heat and Shaw a lot. I respect his growth mindset of being able to grow companies. I respect um, how how he treats people. He values relationships over results, and his his ability to start multiple product after product after product and have them all be successful is is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, uh, maybe talking about like um, how people are. are both strong on the theoretical and operator side. What what is it that you currently do concretely, um, operator side? Let's say, like, oh, what yeah. is it that you do to build Tiny Seeds as a fund and an accelerator? What does that entail? Yeah, like kind of day to day. Like, what yeah. am I focusing on? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's very much. It really is just another startup. Like, it's the next startup in my in my journey, right? And I've been, mm -hmm. I've been starting them since 2000. So that's what, 18 years I've been launching these things. I've only, but my first success was really, you know, 2005. So you might say it's 13 years, but um, it is, it's two of us working on this thing. So, and we, at this point we have, you know, funding committed verbally, but we don't have funding in bank accounts. So we're totally essentially bootstrapped. And, you know, uh, I am using, it's much, it's, it's very interesting. And in that starting SaaS apps is much more about, we got to get in the code. We got to build features. We've got to figure out what we're doing. This is so far different than that. And this is much more of me. I'm doing meetings. Uh, I'm doing phone calls and I'm doing email a lot to connect with people. So it's much more about, um, you know, doing essentially customer development with other founders. It's, finding out who might be interested in, you know, becoming a, a, a tiny seed, you know, part of tiny seed as a founder. It's talking to investors. I'm not heading that part up, but I'm definitely weighing in on that. It's sitting down with my tiny seed co-founder 
to figure out, okay, what would the terms look like? You know, we had a call a couple days ago to like, we're trying to nail things down there. So it's much more about, um, I don't know, it's like, person, it's like my personal network and my audience and kind of bringing folks together and really send, in all honesty, it's sending a lot of email, which traditionally I would not have enjoyed. You know, if you look back five years, I would have complained about being in email all the time. But there's something interesting and exciting about it. And I think it's that it's, it's just moving the needle forward, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it's like pushing this thing forward that if you don't do it, no one else will. And that's, yeah. that's what I'm doing. So I'm just, I'm thinking about all that stuff. I mean, literally yesterday, I, you know, I got in touch with a, a design agency because we need a logo and a website. And I sat down and I built the site map out for what, what the site's going to look like, right? What are the 12 pages we're going to have on our website, thetinyc.com? Because right now it's just a landing page. And so that, and so I scheduled a call with them. So that's, you know, an example of, it's just, it's just a startup. Just, you would do that for any, you know, I do that if we were a SaaS app, I would do the exact same thing, right? We need a logo. So there's nothing magical there. The difference is we are talking to investors and I'm essentially interviewing, you know, founders, but it's kind of like I'm meeting with and interviewing and talking to them, which is something I've done for years, right? But I'm just doing it with more intention now. Yeah. Because... uh, Maybe you you were saying that it's a bit different than in a a, a SaaS company. Yeah. Um, do you think that is because in a SaaS company we tend to believe that the product is everything and that all the other things are kind of secondary? I would agree with that. Yeah. Especially yeah. for someone like who's a maker. You know, if you're yeah. a developer or a designer, we do tend to think the product's most important. And when I think back to building Drip, I spent. I mean, especially in the early days, it was like 90% of our time. Well, that's not true. Derek was 100% of his time focused on product, right? Because he was coding mm-hmm. and designing. And for me, it was probably 75% of my time thinking about the product. Talk, I was talking to customers, to be fair, but I was talking to them to figure out what to build next and how to build it and if they were happy and all that. And then I spent about 25% of my time you know, doing marketing. Later on, that got bigger. You know, as we launched, marketing became half my time or more of my time. But definitely product dominates when you're launching a SaaS app because it is... Or any software product, right? It is so important to get product right. And if you think about us, what is our product? Well, Tiny Seed's product is our offering to investors and our offering to founders. Mm-hmm. You know, and how how we package that, how we uh, and how we position it and market it. And so, even just sitting down and writing an essay or a manifesto type thing about, hey, this is what we're doing, and this is why it's new and unique, and why we think it's going to work. That itself is you can call that marketing, but it really is part of the product, right? It's, it's a way to position the product to, you know, whoever I'm writing that manifesto for, which would probably be founders at this point. Yeah. But don't you think in the, in the, in the case of a SaaS startup, this should also be part of the product, like the I whole do. experience around it, the manifesto, the, yep. the website, the, the connections you build around it. It's yep. all part of the same thing. And it just, maybe it is because the software is so complex. Uh, that we see it as a separate thing yeah. and be- also because it's done by uh, typically by uh, a different group of people within the company um, that we start separating it or I don't know. Yeah, no, I think you're onto something. I think that most of us make that mistake, especially early on. Um, and it's something that I, I think I did 
a decent job of it with Drip. Like as soon as we built a product that I realized was was killer and it was growing quickly, I did do what these things that we're talking about. I did reach out to my network and say, hey, we built something I think is pretty special. You should take a look at it. You know, I really was, um, became an evangelist and worked my network to have people promoted and did all that stuff. But it, I don't feel, I did it, I did an okay job of it. I didn't do a great job. And I feel like I'm finally with this, with this startup, you know, with Tiny Seed, that's finally clicked in such a way. And I don't know if it's because there is no software to write that it makes it easier for me, or I don't know mm-hmm. if I've just matured and gotten better at it, but I'm definitely much more outward focused, you know? And I think that's the difference, right? Is it's like, if you're, if you're inwardly focused and you're writing code in your basement or your home office, it's, yeah, you just, you're not going to have nearly as much of a chance of, uh, of making yeah. it work. Mm-hmm. Cool. Are you totally different thing? Are you uh, someone who works long days or are you more someone who, who makes clear separation between like, these are my working hours, you stop early and then you take a lot of time. Or are you more like always on? Good question. I, my actual time of sitting in a chair behind a laptop is relatively small uh, mm-hmm. even, even when we were growing drip, we tended to work about 35 hours a week. And I've always wanted that, you know, pretty decent lifestyle that way. With that said, when I was, if I was behind a computer 30, 35 hours a week, I was thinking about it another 20 hours a week. You know what I mean? Even if I wasn't writing something, it was constant like, oh, you know what? I need to email that person. Boom, throw it in my Trello board. In the shower, you know, or doing dishes. It's like, oh yeah, there's that's a really good idea for a blog post that would be viral. Boom, hit in my Trello. So mm-hmm. my, my background thread and even my foreground thread is almost always about, it's really like work and family, right? Those are the two things I think about most. And so these days I'm similar. Like I can't sit behind a computer for you know, eight or 10 hours a day anymore. I, I, I did used to do that. So back in the early days when I was trying, when I was consulting full-time working a day job, I would come home at night. We didn't have kids or we had a real young, really young one. And Mm -hmm. I would put in another three to four hours every night. So I worked really long days, but it it was a side hustle, right? I, I was, my goal was to get out of the day job and I was younger, you know, again, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and then at a certain point, once I achieved, uh, I'll call it like freedom, right? Where I was living off my own product income, which was well about 10 years ago now that happened. Then I backed way off and I said, all right, I'm going to work as little as possible just to see if I can. And I had about about eight months where I worked about 10 hours a week total. And I it was pure automation lifestyle businesses. And it was amazing. And then I got bored, you know? And that's when I said, all right, now I'm going to do my next thing. And that's when I did Hittail, which was that SaaS app before Drip and um, took on new challenges. So that's been my evolution. It's a long way of saying a little of both, but I do feel like I'm so, so, so much more efficient than I used to be. Like I've just, I can sit down for four hours and get done what it, you know, used to take me eight hours because I'm just, I'm just, I don't know, older, wiser, whatever it is. Yeah. How do you think you do that? Because people are like filling the whole internet with productivity. Yeah. I mean, so I, I actually recorded an entire 20-minute episode of this podcast called Zen Founder. And mm-hmm. it's called like Rob's Productivity Hacks or something like that. It was went live within the last month. 
and I just talk through what I do today and how I manage all of the incoming because I get a hundred and probably 150 emails a day, right? I receive. And I'm I have at any given time 20 emails in my inbox. Like I, I process email very fast now. And I use Trello and Gmail and I'm trying to think of what about other systems, but I just when stuff comes in, it's like you triage it, you delete it, you respond quickly or you top pop it in Trello to respond later. You know, there's I don't double handle stuff. I capture everything and and process it quickly. So I think that's kind of the that's been a big thing is not to leave stuff sitting somewhere where I keep coming back to it and thinking about it and then oh, I'm going to go check Twitter and Hacker News and then you come back to it again. You know, that that's been a discipline that I've had to teach myself because I don't think any of us do that do that naturally. So you use kind of two apps on the next to each other, Gmail yep. and the Trello app. Yep, and I have them pinned. You know, I have them pinned in the in in Chrome, mm-hmm. and then I have a yep, and I use them right together. And so, if something comes in that's any type of length, like uh, I am going to recruit a speaker for Microconf, I email her, she sends me a video, and it's like, well, I'm not going to do that right now. So I will pop it in Trello, watch this video, boom, links in there, and I know that at a certain point in the next, you know, day, mm-hmm. I will be at a point where my, where I'm fried. Cause I don't want to, you know, peak productivity time. I don't want to be watching a video, right? Mm-hmm. At peak productivity time. I should be writing a manifesto, right? Or I should be writing a difficult email or I should be thinking through something very complicated. But wow. at a certain point, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to kick on that video. I have a Chrome plugin that makes it so I can watch videos accelerate their speed, right? So I watch it at about 1.6, 1.7 X, any, any embedded video, it'll do that. YouTube and Vimeo and even stuff from Dropbox. I think mm-hmm. if, if it's HTML5, it'll do it. Um, and so then I'll do that, you know, and skip through it. And so it's, it's little things like that, but each of them is, it all adds up and, you know, makes it so, again, I, I feel like I'm more productive than, than I used to be in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if I get it while well, you, you basically take the to-dos out of the emails, uh, you put it in. They're the longer email. than... Yep. If they're longer than, I mean, if it's something I can do in a minute or two, I just do it right there in the email. But yeah, yeah. it's longer than that, you know. Yeah. Are you using the snoozing functionality in Gmail or? I do. Well, I see. So I use um, Boomerang, which was yeah. a precursor before they, yeah. So I use Boomerang a lot. And that's another mm-hmm. thing. Here's the other thing. I am like keyboard shortcut, uh, you know, obsessed. Yeah. So I try to figure out, I, I almost am, I, in Gmail, I almost never touch the mouse. Mm-hmm. So if you watch me, it's kind of, I mean, being a programmer, that's where I learned that, right? It's like, I don't ever want my hand to leave the keyboard. So as emails are coming in and I'm going through them, yeah, if I'm sending an important email and I know I'm going to email an important person to ask them, you know, to, do you want to invest or do you want to, you know, potentially be a founder in Tiny Seed or do you want to be a speaker at MicroConf? I know that I want a response, right? And I don't want to have to remember that. So there's, you know, the shortcut is you hit B and then you hit, space in seven days, hit enter, and it'll boomerang it in seven days. It'll come back. And so if they respond, it won't uh, boomerang it. And if they do respond, then it error. You know, if they don't respond, then I'll get it back and then I can follow up on that. So I love... Boomerang was life-changing for me. Life-changing maybe is exaggerating, but it definitely changed my workflow, you know, whatever, three, four years ago when when it came out. Yeah, but you're still on boomerang, not on the snoozing in Gmail. Yeah, the only I do snooze in Gmail when I'm on my phone because I use the Gmail app on iOS mm-hmm. and it doesn't have Boomerang built in. But now mm-hmm. that Snooze is there, you know, I do. That's the other thing, you know, I went on vacation 
uh, a couple weeks ago. And as stuff, I still check email, you know, every day when I'm on vacation multiple times and certain things I'll respond, boom, no problem. And other things it's like, huh, I'm not going to do that till I get home. So I snooze it, you know, for the Monday or Tuesday after I get back because Mm -hmm. I just don't want to clutter in the inbox. And that does mean that I get a bunch of stuff coming back in my inbox on a Monday or Tuesday, but typically, you know, after vacation, but typically uh, by that time I'm well caffeinated. I'm, I'm in a place on my laptop where I can handle these things super fast. I don't try to do long emails on my phone. I don't try to do a lot on my phone because it's just such a hassle, you know, to you're very inefficient typing on a phone. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Cool. Is there, is there any other things you do to, uh, to stay productive? Um, is it- yeah, I'm, I'm really mindful. I'm really mindful of, well, go ahead. Yeah, I'm really mindful of my um, kind of my body clock. And I know that mm-hmm. I have productivity, a nice big productivity spurt in the morning for about three or four hours. And then I know afternoons are going to be less, you know, creative, but I can still get a lot done. I tend to do a lot of email in the afternoons. And I tend to do my deep work in the morning, you know, so I, I actually shut the Gmail tab. I have no notifications on anything. My phone doesn't buzz. If you're going to, the only time my phone buzzes is if someone texts me, you know, or if Instacart shows up at my door or whatever, like it's important and not many people have my phone number. So I, you know, emails don't make my phone buzz and neither do Twitter DMs and neither does LinkedIn DMs or any of this stuff. Like I, all that is batched, you know, at, at a separate time. Yeah. And so I, I guard the morning, I typically drink a very small amount of caffeine and I put on headphones and turn some type of either deep focus playlist or even often like punk music, like really fast, hard hitting music. And it kind of motivates me. I'll just crank through a bunch of, bunch of stuff. And that's been a, a fun one too, is to be able to control the times of day that I work and do what kinds of work and to not book meetings in the morning, Right. And this is all luxury of, of being able to run, of running your own company. Whereas if you're, you know, working for someone else, it's not necessarily something that you can block out your whole morning every morning and not have to do uh, meet with other folks. So I feel like I'm at peak productivity when I'm able, able to manage my own, my own schedule. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Um, maybe slowly starting to wrap up because we've been talking for quite a while already. Um, what is the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, latest good book. Dang, that's a, that's a trick one. Cause I was going to talk about something that a book that I just like in general, but yeah, if me. I look, if no, I look it's good, at it, good, good. you're okay with that. Yeah. And whatever, whatever you, you feel strongest about this. Uh. Okay. I, um, I really liked the book, The Snowball, and it's the biography of um, uh, Warren Buffett. And the reason I liked it is because I, res- I love the, the story of someone who is just really good at something for a very, very long time. And he came from modest means, and he built himself up from nothing into a, you know, a deca billionaire. And he didn't do it in a fancy way. He did it by showing up every day, you know, and by being really pragmatic and just playing long ball, 
and he thinks long, he thinks longer term than pretty much anyone, you know, and over decades, his, his money compounded. And so it's a, it's a fascinating story to see someone build an empire like that out of nothing. And he didn't build a company per se, obviously he buys and acquires companies and all that, but he didn't do a, a Jeff Bezos, right? He didn't start Amazon. He didn't start GE. He didn't, you know, and that's how a lot of people get rich. He did it in such a different way. And the, the story is amazing. It's one of my favorite audiobooks of all time, actually. Oh, you read, uh, you don't read it, you listen to the audiobook. I listen to a lot of audio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I subscribe to maybe 40 podcasts and I probably listen to an audiobook a week, maybe two. Yeah. Cool. Um, another question. Uh, is there anything you'd, you wish you'd have known when you started out? Yeah. I mean, I, two things. One, I wished I had known that it would take a lot longer than I thought it would. You know, I figured as soon as I had some success, because the problem is you read the press, you know, now it's TechCrunch, but it used to be Entrepreneur Magazine and Inc. Magazine. I know they're still around, but the stories are always glorifying this overnight success. And I just, I just don't believe in overnight success anymore. And I, it was a painful realization that, oh, it's going to take me years to achieve my goal. I wish I'd known that at the start. I think that's a big one. I think the other one is that the emotional side and being able to manage your own emotions as an entrepreneur is way more important to you than perhaps any other skill. Yeah. That's, that's indeed, that's very good advice. Uh, but what is actually the, the, the best piece of advice you, you, you've ever got? If you can share that with us. Hmm. I think, <laughs> I don't know that it's, it wasn't advice given directly to me. It was a blog post that Jason Cohen wrote and he called it rich or king. And he basically says, look, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? And to be rich is if you, the, the context is you've had an offer for someone to acquire your company. And some people say, I, will, I would never sell my company ever, ever, ever. And I want to be king of this company and I want to run it until the day I die. And other people say, I want the liquidity and I want to have enough money that I can fund all of my kids' college savings accounts and that I never have to worry about money for the rest of my life, right? There's rich and then there's king. And in it, he posits, he's, I think he's defending his decision to sell his, his startup, right? He sold multiple startups. And mm -hmm. he basically says, it's, all, it's easy to say, oh, I'd never sell my startup until you're sitting in a restaurant and someone offers you enough money that you never have to work again. That's when the that's when the rubber meets the road. Like, am I going to do this or not? And he talks through the both sides of it and basically says, "Look, if it's your first one and you don't have enough money, you know, to to live forever, fu money, some people call it. If you don't have fu money, then it's probably a decent idea to do that and take some money off the table." Um, and I think that certain people get caught up in the the dogma or the pride of of never selling ever. And I I don't know that that's the right choice. And I think that I, I feel good about the choices that I've made, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of moving from one company to the next. And, um, I think that that post probably helped me make those decisions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again, Rob, for being on Founder Coffee. Um, it was, it was really great to have you. Yeah, man, it was great. Um, it was my pleasure and I appreciate you inviting me on. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.